Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there is always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to BetOnline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's BetOnline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow, and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. Continue to strive to bring you conversations with experts in the field of sports, players, coaches, broadcasters. You name it, we're going to reach out to them and bring that conversation. Today's guest, somebody who had a tremendous playing career, both in college and in the pros, uh, in the NBA as well as overseas, and now he is in a similar role as me during the college basketball season as one of the young broadcasters bringing you the insight that everybody thirsts for. So none other than a good friend of mine, a former teammate, Casey Jacobson. Casey, welcome. How is life for you in Southern California? Dan, it's a pleasure to be with you, man. I miss you, brother. Um, yeah, it is. Uh, these are strange times for all of us, uh, but I appreciate you reaching out because uh, uh, I could talk basketball all day. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of college basketball to be talking about. Um, there is some NBA hoops, though. I'm, I'm super stoked about that, seeing seeing LeBron back at it with his boys. But um, yeah, man, Dan, anytime you want to talk about hoops, I'm your man. Uh, stroll down memory lane when you and I used to, to ball out with the New Orleans Hornets. Uh, yeah, man, I, I, you said we only can have about 20 to 25 minutes to talk. I could probably talk for two hours, bro. <laughs> it probably could be the case for myself as well. I had Brian Scalabrini, who I was teammates with, with oh, the Celtics. Very similar to yourself where, you know, as an NBA player, you've got bus rides, you've got plane rides, you're always talking shop about basketball and just different things. What is it that you miss most from your playing career? Because everybody has different insights <laughs> to what they miss, but how about you? Well, let's start with number one, which is getting paid an insane amount of money to do something that I would gladly have done for free, something True. I had done from when I was a child. You know, uh, once you retire from basketball, you realize uh, it's, it's a little bit harder to make money uh, and, and support your family than uh, throwing a leather basketball through an iron hoop. So probably start with that. I miss that just a little bit. Um, I would say that I, I miss playoff basketball, whether you're in the NBA, whether you're overseas. Playoff basketball is a different animal. Um, playoff basketball was, was probably the only time where I got those butterflies in my stomach um before a game kind of remind me that i'm alive that i'm playing for something real 
Um, playoff basketball is often the time where the stands are completely packed with fans and they're going crazy. Um, you, it, it's hard to get that kind of atmosphere anywhere else in life, no matter what you do for a living. So playoff basketball is something that I think about. I, I, I reflect on fond memories. And then, of course, the relationships that you make over the course of your career. You know, when, you're, when you and I were playing together, we were young men. And, yeah, we were married and we were starting our families. But we have since, you know, in the last decade and a half, uh, we've gone on to do other things besides basketball. And you look back and you're like, man, we're, we're now men. We were boys back then playing a game. Now we're men. I love to reflect on that, that just special time in my life where I got to really focus on basketball, my craft. I don't, I don't think about basketball quite as much anymore because I have so many other things in my life that uh, re require my attention. Yeah, requiring attention for myself goes in many different ways. I'm a small business owner in addition to the work uh, that I do in the media world. Um, during this pandemic, coronavirus, you've got a business that's pretty unique um, that unfortunately you're having to navigate the waters. If you don't mind sharing, obviously you've got that passion for basketball with the broadcasting side, but what fills the majority of your days business-wise? Yeah, so my wife, Brittany, and I, uh, we run operations for a trampoline park in Southern California, in Mission Viejo. It's called Defy Orange County. And we've been running that business since September of 2017. And it's been going spectacularly well. Um, and it's been a really fun business uh, because, you know, we have three daughters. My wife and I have three daughters. And of course, when your parents uh, run a trampoline park, that's pretty cool. It's better than, than them running an insurance office. Um, but it's a place where we bring a lot of our community together. Um, and of course, Dan, when the uh, coronavirus pandemic hit in March, we had to shut our doors. I believe it was March 17th when we officially shut our doors. Um, and we've been closed for almost five months now, which has been um, absolutely devastating for us and for the business and, and uh, for our community. We hope um, that we could open soon. The, the summer's been completely wiped off the map, which for an entertainment business like ours, the summertime is a huge, huge uh, time in the calendar year, uh, probably second to the um, Christmas break for, for, for kids. So it really has been uh, devastating and sad. But look, like we're not the only business that has been you know, negatively affected. And Dan, I live in California. California is a state that has had high, it's the largest state in the United States, but it's also an area, Southern California, which has had high numbers of coronavirus cases. And we just haven't been able to navigate it as well as we all hoped. And, um, you know, that's, it's really, really unfortunate because I see other trampoline parks, for instance, in other states that are open and not necessarily flourishing, but they are in business and they are getting customers and so to be kind of watching on the sidelines is really painful for my wife and I. So to stay really quickly on the topic of trampoline parks, you're a big guy, you're six, eight. Mm -hmm. How often do you get out there and, and play? <laughs> do flips, <laughs> whatever that's, uh, you know, in your wheelhouse on the trampoline. It, it's a good question. I actually get to do it a lot. I usually am there in the morning time when there are no customers there and it's either just me, my wife, or um, you know, maybe our first early morning employees. So yeah, I do. When I open the doors, I always 
kick off my shoes and do a couple jumps. Now I'm not a huge flipper, Dan. I, I can't even do a backflip, but I can do front flips. Um, and we have like a trapeze bar and a swing and super tramps and a zip line. So there are uh, other things to do if you're not necessarily a flipper, but I actually do get to um, use my park uh, as often as I like. And during the quarantine, I've taken my family. We've actually had two campouts at the trampoline park. We, we bring a tent, we sleep there. Uh, we watched a movie on the trampolines. Kind of cool. That is kind of cool. That's a, that's a term I never thought I would, I would hear you say that you're not a flipper. (laughs) (laughs) I guess every sport, every kind of industry genre or whatever, they've got their own terminology. So that's something I just learned right now. So Mm -hmm. I want to go back to to the previous question that I had asked you about. You you mentioned playoff basketball. Uh, I was never able to be a part of a a playoff team in the NBA or in Europe because of injuries. Um, But you had one of the most spectacular runs in in the German league the BBL for for a team called Bros Baskets Bamberg a team that I played for a short bit uh based off a lot of your recommendation of how well they treated you when I spent time there playing you were spoke of as the mayor of Bamberg talk about your playing career in Germany for Bamberg the the memories that you have and and just the the experience that you and your family had um, yeah, so I, I first played in Bamberg in 2007. I was recruited by the head coach there. His name was Dirk Bowerman. Dirk was, uh, in the 1980s, he actually was an assistant coach for the Fresno State Bulldogs. So um, he, he is German, but he spent time in America, fluent English. And so when he called me, he said, hey, uh, it was in the middle of the season in 2007. He said, hey, we need help. We lost uh, one of our best players, and I've seen you play before in Europe, and I want you to come to our team, and we'll build our, our offense around you. I said, all right, I'm sold. Let's do this. So I went over there, and we actually won the championship that year in 2007. But more than the basketball success, I was so um, just uh, impressed by the passion for basketball that the city of Bamberg had. Now, for those uh, who don't know, um, you know, of course, soccer is, is king in Germany. It's king in, in all of Europe. But I would say the second most popular sport in Germany would be basketball. It's heavily supported. People follow it. They love it. And especially in Bamberg. Bamberg does not have a uh, professional f- soccer team. So I, I equate it to um, like this, in Salt Lake City, the Utah Jazz are like the biggest show in Utah because they don't have an NFL team. Very similar to Bamberg. They, they love their basketball. They, they support it. And so when we won a championship, um, and I was our leading scorer, I was, uh, not the only reason, but a big reason uh, for the kind of turnaround in that season, um, it was uh, – yeah, the, the people just begged me to come back. And I, I said, absolutely, let's, let's, let's run it back, Dan. Let's run it back. Um, so we ended up winning five championships there. Um, over the course of, I guess it was seven seasons that I played in Bamberg. So, um, and, but like, look, listen, I, I can't take all the credit. Uh, we had a ton of really good players. Tibor Pleiss, Brian Roberts, who played in the NBA for like four years. P.J. Tucker, who's now one of the best role players in the NBA, was my teammate in Bamberg for a year. Um, Marcus Slaughter, uh, Kyle Hines, who's gone on to play at, at uh, CSKA Moscow for several years. We had some really, really spectacular players there in Bamberg. We had a lot of success. 
Um, good times, man. Although the only drawback to, to winning five championships, Dan, and, and you know about this, is that means you have a really long season. And yeah. I, was, I was in Europe almost always until middle of June. And you know that most training camps start in August. So my summers were gone in the blink of an eye. Yeah, those, uh, those summers are a grind if you're playing over in Europe. But I, like I said, I, I had a short stint in Bomberg, and a lot of it was based off of the experience you, you shared with me and how great they treated you. But I'm being dead truthful. When I would go somewhere and they would see bros baskets or they had seen me play a game the night before, a couple days before, whatever, they always ask, do you know Casey Jacobson? <laughs> yeah, I do. Casey was teammates with me. He's one of the reasons I'm here because he had good things to say. And so literally there were tons of people that said you were the mayor of Bomberg during your time there. <laughs> I, I, would, I would disagree. Um, I would say that my wife, Brittany, was the mayor of, of Bomberg. She was way more active socially and friends with everybody. So, uh, but, but Bomberg embraced my entire family. Then two of my three daughters were born in Germany. My oldest daughter, Elizabeth, who wasn't born in Germany, was raised in Bomberg, dude. She, she went to preschool, kindergarten, first and second grade in Bomberg. And the school we put her in was completely German. No English speaking at all. The teachers only knew like, hi, how are you? And that was it. So my, my daughter came home when I retired, completely fluent in the German language, probably more proficient in German than she was in English. Crazy. Wow. That's, that's, uh, those are one of those little things that most people don't understand and realize for yeah. someone who goes over and plays in Europe that their family has to get acclimated to it as well. Um, so that's a that's awesome. Going back now to your time at Stanford, you you became a a household name at Stanford because you guys had some really good teams. Um, the biggest moment that I remember of your career was a game winner. I believe it was against Duke when there was maybe the most visible or famous athlete, top two, top three athletes of all time, sitting courtside. None other than Tiger Woods. Can you walk us back through? the excitement of hitting a game winner and looking over and seeing Tiger Woods, you know, cheering the way he was. Absolutely. I could reminisce about this for a while, but um, it was my, my sophomore year at Stanford. It was the 2000, 2001 college basketball season. Um, we were ranked third in the country, Dan, and we were taking on the top ranked team in the nation, Duke. Uh, both of us were undefeated at the time. Um, huge matchup, probably, uh, besides an NCAA tournament game, which I did play in my, uh, in my freshman year, it was like the biggest regular season game I'd ever played in in my entire life. Um, and, you know, to kind of make it more personal, Dan, I was recruited by, Stanford, uh, by Duke. It, my, my college decision came down to Stanford or Duke. They were recruiting both myself and Mike Dunleavy Jr. at the time. Dunleavy commits early to Duke, which made my decision kind of an automatic to go to Stanford. But when we played each other, it wasn't that I hated Duke, right? Because, you know, I almost w I wanted to go there. But the fact that they took Dunleavy Jr. kind of over me was like a kind of a chip on my shoulder, personally, for me in that game. And uh, anyways, yeah, it was a we were getting our tails kicked in the first half, Dan. We came back, made a big comeback. We actually ended up scoring on our last, I think, 13 consecutive possessions, which if you think about it, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, uh, yeah, with, with about five seconds to go, we were down uh, one, and we called a timeout. We had a side inbounds, 
And it was a play to try and get a lob to Jason Collins at the rim. So it was me on the block. I set a back screen for him. And then it was just a matter of reading the defense. If the back screen was successful and Jason was open, obviously we throw the lob to him. If there's a switch or something, then maybe I have a mismatch and I take a, a bigger guy off the dribble. And what ended up happening is Jason Williams, or Jay, <coughs> excuse me, Jay Williams, who's now an ESPN guy, was guarding me. And he had to help a little bit. And that, when he helped off, uh, off to, to guard the rim, he left me open. So it was an easy inbounds pass. I drove left, and I shot a bank shot off the glass. It went in. Uh, we ended up winning that game. But uh, Duke got the last laugh, Dan, because they ended up winning the national title that year, um, something that, uh, yeah, I, I still think about. I wish I could have had a chance to play for a Final Four or a national title. <clears throat> and that year, that year was the team that could have done it. We were, we were really, really good. Yeah, I remember that team uh, clearly because obviously at Gonzaga, we were having some success. We didn't necessarily have the size needed to go deep into a Final Four unless you get on a magical run, which obviously Gonzaga now has become one of the elite, elite programs in the country. Mm -hmm. But I, the, the average fan doesn't realize just how good you have to be and then how things have to align properly. And then you also have to have you know a coaching staff that really kind of knows the process, knows how to get you guys peaking at the right time of the year. And you guys had that in, in Mike Montgomery. What kind of mentorship did he provide to your team or to you? And what have you taken away from Mike uh, after all these years? An amazing coach, but I'm going to be completely honest with you, Dan. When I first went to Stanford, I didn't like Coach Montgomery. My, my freshman year was a struggle with him. Not uh, like I loved playing at Stanford. I loved the academics and the athletics and all that. We were a really good team, um, but I went to Stanford with the expectation like Coach Montgomery would be like my personal mentor, and that's not his style of coaching. And what I learned over the course of my life was that coaches can't be everything to everyone. They have a certain style. They can't be best friends with the entire, sta uh, the entire um, uh, team, uh, and Coach Montgomery's style was very much kind of a business relationship but I will tell you what and so it took me Dan probably a year and a half at Stanford to kind of get over that I kept wanting coach Montgomery to be like my buddy and he was very clear that he was my coach and so when I finally accepted that and just got over it and said you know what like he's not going to be um you know my boy he's just going to be my coach um and once I got over that it was amazing because Mike Montgomery is probably still to this day the best manager of a season. He had us prepared better than any coach I've ever played for. Um, our, our practices were long now. They were like three and a half hours every single day. Um, but we were so thorough. I never felt like we were outcoached in any game that I played at Stanford. I never felt like we were underprepared in any game that we played. And that's a testament to him and his coaching staff. And now, now that I'm a grown man, I have actually gotten a lot closer to Coach Montgomery. Uh, you know, we, we talk and we text. We see each other on the broadcasting circuit a little bit as he does some work for, for radio and for Pac-12. So I'm closer with him now than I ever was back then. It just took me a while to realize that your coach doesn't have to be your friend. He is supposed to be your coach. And once I realized that, it was smooth sailing. Yeah, that's an insight that a lot of high school or college kids don't understand until much later once you figured it out it sounds like it was a it was a 
match made in heaven, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, for a lot of success. Now, with your time at Stanford, uh, they've got a tremendous golf course there. I've never played it. Tiger Woods was at that game against Duke where you hit the game winner. Have you had a chance to play golf with Tiger Woods? No. No, I haven't. I got Tiger to sign an autographed uh, picture of that game that we talked about. When I hit the winning shot, there was a picture in the San Jose Mercury News the next day of me running back on defense and Tiger Woods like two feet in the air with his arms raised uh, in celebration. And so I had him sign it when I saw him. But we have never played basketball against each other. And, I, of course, I've never played golf. That's, that's tremendous to hear and see in that picture, because I have seen it before, you know, the joy that athletics can bring even to someone in, as successful as he is in another sport. That, that is awesome. Now, before you got to Stanford, you were one of the, the most highly decorated players to come out of, of Southern California in high school basketball. I, I believe um, you're the all-time leading scorer in Southern California. That might have changed recently if somebody's surpassed that. Tell, tell us a little bit about your high school experience, your upbringing, kind of what drove you um, to have the success that you had. Yeah, sure. I'll try to be quick. I, I grew up in a house of all boys, Dan. I have three brothers. My dad played basketball at San Diego State. Um, so we have kind of a pedigree. Um, my dad taught me everything I knew. I have two older brothers who got Division One scholarships. So you can imagine, Dan, growing up, when you have a dad that played college hoops, you have two older brothers who got Division One scholarships. There is a certain standard of pressure that I definitely yes. felt when I was young to live up to that expectation. And it was good. It, it drove me. I mean, maybe it would uh, crumble others, but I had, a, I had a personality, a strong will that I wanted to be as good or better than my brothers. They certainly drove me. And so, yeah, I did go to Glendora High School. Uh, Glendora is a uh, suburb outside of Los Angeles. And I was really lucky, Dan. Uh, I was born and raised in Glendora. I didn't move there. I, I was there my whole life. I was lucky that Glendora actually had one of the best coaches in California high school basketball history. Number one on the wins list in California in high school is Gary McKnight, of course, of modern day fame. But I believe number two on that list is my coach, Mike LaDuke. So talk about luck to be born and raised in a town that had one of the best uh, high school coaches uh, in the state and maybe even uh, in the country. He coached Tracy Murray and Cameron Murray as well, who went uh, to UCLA and, and USC respectively. So the guy knew what he was doing. Um, and I, my years there were invaluable, Dan. I don't know um, your development in your high school years, but I felt like from my freshman year to my sophomore year in high school, I grew physically and mentally. And part of it was, you know, just luck and, and being born to a dad that's big and tall, but also just being uh, around a great high school coach and a high school program that developed my skills. And so um, I was a freshman on varsity that averaged, I was a pipsqueak. I was like 6'2", 180 pounds, maybe, not even that. Hey, that's, um, that's bigger than I am now, Casey. That's not that small. <laughs> but, but, like, but I was skinny um, and I averaged like, I don't know, 14 points a game uh, my freshman year. And then my sophomore year, I, I went from 14 points to 26 points a game. Huge leap in just not only my skill, but my confidence. I also grew three inches from my freshman to my sophomore year. So I, I look back on my high school life, Dan, and I think two things. One, 
lucky that I had a coach like Mike LaDuke. And two, that freshman to sophomore year was a turning point in my basketball life. It was then where I really felt like, okay, I really am as good as my brothers. Like before I was always wondering, am I ever going to be as good as my brothers? And it was that sophomore leap that I finally, like the, the light turned on, I grew and uh, I started to dominate certain stretches, not all the time, but I started to dominate certain stretches of the game and it became really, really fun um, and a catapult for my career. I've had a couple Southern California uh, basketball people on this ISO podcast. Harvey Katani, longtime high school wow. coach, Fairfax, now at Rolling Hills Prep. David Fisdale, who uh, is from there, played at USD. He's been a, in, in the NBA for close to 20 years, has been a head coach. I asked them this same question that I'm about to ask you. Who's the best high school player in the Southern California, area, L.A. area that you either played against or you saw? Man, that's hard. By, by the way, uh, Dan, David Fisdale played basketball at USD with my brother. I've known David since I was like 15 years old. Um, so uh, I, dude, that is so hard because that, the question you asked is so hard because Southern California is loaded with talent. Uh, I would say, though, that most people who followed my career know the, the friendly rivalry that I had with Jason Capona. We played each other two times, uh, both our junior and our senior years. We were constantly compared to each other because we were both white dudes uh, who were, you know, three-point shooters. We were both all uh, McDonald's All-Americans our senior year. Um, so, you know, we, we lived like 30 minutes from each other. So that was – and Jason was a phenomenal player uh, in high school and in college. Our rivalry uh, did carry over when he went to UCLA and I was at Stanford. So – I would say Jason was was probably my biggest high school rival. And then the other uh, one I would say is I played AAU basketball with Tyson Chandler. And he's two years younger than me, but he was such a prodigy, prodigy Dan. Like it, his skill level and his size for his age blew me away. I had never seen a player of 6'10", almost 7 feet who can move as, as easily as Tyson. Now, there have been some other guys who have come along since then. But for me at that stage, I, I was like, are you kidding me? This kid's athleticism is off the chart. So, um, and not only that, Dan, is Tyson was a fantastic kid. He was just a normal, down-to-earth, good dude, great teammate. So those are two guys that probably come to mind as, as the best players that I, I played with and against. Yeah, Capono was an absolute sniper from the three-point line. And, and you're right. Uh, I've heard the same about Tyson Chandler. I mean, there's a reason. Yeah, you've got to be good enough uh, athletically, skill-wise, to to last nearly 20 years in the NBA like he did. Um, but you also have to be a great teammate and know when it's your turn to lead and when it's your turn to 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 kind of be a mentor. And from what I've seen, what I've heard, uh, he fits the description that you made about him perfectly well. Last couple questions before uh, I let you go, and and I know. Um, you've got a lot of experience playing with and against good players. You, you started your NBA career in Phoenix with Steve Nash, uh, Amari Stoudemire, and in in what was a new style at the time. Now it's every yeah. single team in the NBA seems to be doing it. Yeah. But who, are, who was the best teammate that you played with in the NBA? So uh, there's one of two, there's two guys. Okay. And the first one was Joe Johnson. So Joe uh, is kind of an interesting guy because I don't know if you know Joe Johnson well, Dan, 
he's he's an introvert. Joe is more on the quiet and shy side. But here's why Joe, and I tell my wife Brittany this all the time, Joe's one of my favorite basketball players that I've ever played with. Uh, we played against each other too when, when we both moved on to other teams. Joe is as consistent um, and unselfish of a worker as I've ever seen. He was always on time, Dan. He Actually, no, I take that back. He was always early to practice. He was always working on his game. He was always taking care of his body. He was always in the weight room. Joe was consistent. And over the course of Joe's career, he, I don't think um, – at one point in his NBA career, Dan, Joe Johnson had, like, started – in 300 and something consecutive games. And of course that takes a little bit of luck to stay healthy, but it wasn't a surprise to me knowing his work habits, seeing him every day. This dude was steady as a rock. And I loved, I, he wasn't spectacular, but Dan, as you grow older, you know how valuable consistency is? You know how valuable it is to know that you can count on somebody to be there? That was Joe. He, he was always there. He always produced. I can't remember a time where it was like, oh, Joe, Joe sucks tonight. He, he's not playing hard. He didn't give us anything. That was never the case. So number one, shout out to Joe Johnson. And then number two would be Steve Nash. Steve was – I only played with Steve for one season in 2005, uh, but he was the MVP of that year. That was uh, the first of his two MVPs. Um, Steve was as humble a superstar as you'll see. He also had an incredible work ethic. I thought I was one of the hardest workers on the team. And then Steve, like, completely uh, just, you know, blew me out of the water. Um, the other thing I'll say about Steve is um, he is genuinely happy when other people score and get the credit, Dan. Like, I play with a lot of players who say to the media, yeah, I'm a team guy. Yeah, I want to win. Yeah, I'm all about, you know, like championships. Um, and that's not true because I, every day you're not about the team. You're about how many points and shots you get, how much money you get paid. Steve Nash was a, a rare superstar, in my opinion, who, who actually did get joy from me scoring or Joe Johnson scoring. He wanted to distribute the wealth. He didn't necessarily care if he got the credit in the paper or he got the most money on the team. Um, he was self-aware to know that when he does his job well and everybody else uh, uh, does well, that we all win together, and there's value in that. So it was a lesson that I learned that even, even big-time superstars can be unselfish, and they really uh, do put the team uh, ahead of their own needs. While we're recording this podcast, the NBA – is in the, the bubble in Orlando and they're almost done with the play-in games and they're going to get going with, with the playoffs. Now our conversation will release once those playoffs begin, who is going to win uh, the NBA playoffs this year? Who's your pick? So I'm, I've been a, a LeBron guy for a while. He's my favorite player to watch in the NBA. Um, and I, I live in Southern California. So my emotional pick is with the Los Angeles Lakers. However, if you've watched them kind of perform, it's hard to imagine a scenario in, in which they're going to win the NBA title, in my opinion. Um, 
because they play in the same conference as the Clippers, who I, who I just think are more built for playoff basketball. They are a better defensive team. Um, and it's not that I always shy towards defensive teams. you got to have that combination of defense and offense. But you, just, you can't be horrible defensively. And sometimes when I watch the Lakers, they're horrible defensively. So, uh, to me, the Clippers are going to win the West, and I do think that they will win the championship. I, I think that they will probably play Milwaukee. Um, and Milwaukee has some of the same limitations as the Lakers, in my opinion. They're just not – I almost feel like Milwaukee's missing one more elite player. Um, and the Clippers just had that swag. They got that grit. They got that grind. And they really don't have any weaknesses. The only hesitation, Dan – it's the Clippers. Are you kidding me, dude? I grew up in Southern California. The Clippers have been dog meat forever. The, to even imagine the Clippers hosting the NBA trophy is really bizarre to me, but I have to go with my mind and not my heart. They are built to win this year's championship. That's funny that, yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard that. I, I spent a year with the Clippers. And even in Staples, it was all about the Lakers. It was all about mm -hmm. the Lakers all over this town when you drive anywhere. And you kind of be looked at as an afterthought. So it would be interesting to see how much of that attention truly does get diverted to the Clippers if they finish this season out with a title. So, uh, Casey, I appreciate you joining myself on the ISO for SB Live Sports. I wish you and your family continued health. And I wish you nothing but the best of luck as school gets started. Uh, and hopefully you can enjoy the beach a little bit before things truly pick up back down in Southern California for you. And thanks so much. We will definitely be enjoying the beach. I'll give you a shout out as I'm, uh, as I'm getting a curl in the wave. All right, bro? Lucky you. Lucky you. All right. Thanks again, Casey. All right, brother. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.